0: Hello, everyone. Um, OK, just a couple announcements. First, I sent an email to everyone whose email I have last night. So if you didn't get an email, I either don't have your email or don't have the correct email. So please write it down over there. Or come, come see me, and I'll write it down. Can you nod your head if you did get an email? Can you raise your hand if you didn't get an email? <laughs> OK. Um, Great. I did have some bounce back. <laughs> okay. um, recordings, in that email, we are, we are recording these. Sorry about the last couple recordings. And the password is, is baptism. Okay. <laughs> um, also, I sent an updated schedule, but there's still another correction. Um, the confession Tree is not on March thirtieth. That's our parish Linton retreat. If you want to go to that, um, so confession retreat is still TBD. Confirmation mass. This is. Well, I'll send this out but just so you know. Is April twenty sixth at seven p.m. So if you're if you are s- seeking to be confirmed, April twenty sixth is the date for that. Okay.
1: Okay, everybody. We're gonna um. Let's say a prayer, and then we'll get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we bless you and praise you. Lord, I thank you for the day you gave me today, I thank you for everyone here. Lord, we just ask that your presence be with us tonight, that you free us from anxieties, that you give us wisdom and insight, the gift of faith, hope, and love. Bless our time together, may we pursue truth, may we pursue you, Uh, and we give this time to you. We make our prayer through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, welcome back everybody, good to see you all. Sounds like it's mutual, as always. So, a couple of things really quick. <clears throat> Should we do the sign of the cross? Do you guys want to know about the sign of the cross? So, when Catholics pray, they, we start most of our prayers pretty much always. And we, we say, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we make that, we touch our foreheads kind of like, you know, some Catholics are good about mid chest, some go down to their belly button, which is more me, whatever. Then they go up to their left shoulder and across to their right. If you do it backwards, you're going to H-E double hockey sticks. No, just kidding. But why do we do that? Um, Here's why. So there's two things I would highlight. The first thing is that one of the things that Catholics believe, right, is that our bodies are good. And so... God wants your heart, he wants your soul, he wants your mind, but he actually gave you a body. And so we'll talk about this throughout the course of our time together, but when you come to church at the Catholic church, right, we do things like we sit and stand and kneel, and if you're not Catholic, you never know what you're supposed to be doing, and you just kind of fake it as best you can, right? Why do we do that? Well, part of the reason is because There's there's a great uh, saying that says, an angel, angels don't have bodies. They're spiritual. They're not physical. An angel can't kneel. But you can. And don't our bodies kind of tell us things, right? Like um, when I'm on my knees, there's just something that that expresses that's different from when I stand. So the first point is that our bodies matter. They're not, they're, they're, they're things that God created. Catholics believe that our bodies are good, that we're supposed to use them. Then the more um, historical reason, the reason we pray that way, is that some of the most ancient Christians, one of them in particular, a guy named St. Irenaeus, wow, that marker has absolutely zero left So I'm going to write in green so you can't see it. That's not bad. So St. Irenaeus. um, St. Irenaeus, very early um, Christian, second century. St. Irenaeus tells us in his writings that the apostles themselves, so I don't know if you all know this. If I ever, sometimes, you got to remember, you know how like when you hang out with, um, so we're, we're building a church right now, we're doing a renovation, and I go to these meetings, and everyone in the meeting has been in either construction or architecture like for like 20 years, and they're like, oh yeah, you know, the um, the CORs and the, you know, log or back to IMF number 24, and I'm like, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> and I have to stop them and say, I have no idea what you just said. So I have been teaching Christianity and Catholicism for 20 years. I'm going to say things that you're going to probably be like, Father Brian, I have no idea what that is. So please be bold with me. Um, So one of those might be, so Jesus has 12 close followers, right? And they're called the apostles. We'll get to why that is. Maybe tonight, maybe next time, we'll see but he has 12 apostles, and they are the 12 men. There are others. Who, there are women who are close to him too, like Mary Magdalene, his mother Mary, Mary of Cleopas. There's others. But the apostles are the first witnesses. They're the, they're the best friends of Christ. And what they did is after, as the, after Jesus dies and ascends to heaven, rises from the dead— they taught others, and we'll get to this. They taught Christianity to others, and they said, here's what Jesus actually taught, here's what he said. And we'll talk about where the Bible fits into that, but that's probably next class. Um, but one of those others is St. Irenaeus. And St. Irenaeus tells us that the apostles taught all Christians that when they pray, that they're to do that as they start. Now, do Catholics think that you have to do that when you pray? No. But it's beautiful. It's a good thing. So what it is, is Christians believe, right, in that God is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Three persons, one God. We'll get to that. Gosh, did I open the wrong can of worms tonight, didn't I? But three persons, one God, and that we were, we were saved by the death of Jesus on a cross. And so when we pray, we make that cross over our bodies because that's how we were saved and redeemed. And we confess. We, confession is a way of saying I be, we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's just a beautiful, physical thing that helps us enter into prayer. Right? Kind of like, I don't know, if you're all ramped up and you've been going all day and uh, you try to sit down and, and clear your mind and pray and think and meditate... It's really hard to do that right away, but if you um, go into a different room and you maybe get on your knees or you sit, there's something about that physical change that helps change things. So the sign of the cross is not a huge deal in Catholicism, but that's where it comes from, and that's why we do it at the beginning of every prayer. Questions? Yeah, Ben? No, there's no real difference between going down to your sternum versus your belly, except if you go to your sternum, you're a sinner. No, just kidding. Yeah, there's there's no real difference. I got made fun of in seminary one time because apparently my sign of the cross is really big, and one of the guys was like, oh yeah, I'm Brian. I'm so cool. I go all the way down here. In seminary, you're pent up together for seven years, and so little things become big things. Yeah. Yeah, so at Mass, uh, Catholics, when the Gospels read, when we read from the Gospels, again, if you don't know what the Gospels are, we're going to get to that. Um, but those are the, the Gospels are the writings of, not all four of them are eyewitnesses, but let's just go with that for now. Basically, they're the four eyewitnesses that were written down for Jesus' life. And they contain the, the, the words of Christ and the teachings of Christ and so when Catholics hear that, they make a simple prayer. And so when I do that, there's, um, I make that a little cross on my forehead. And I say, may the Lord be on my lips and in my heart. Or No, sorry. <laughs> if you're listening online, you have no idea what just happened. Um, may the Lord be in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart, that I might worthily proclaim his gospel. And so it's just a simple prayer. Not a necessary thing, but kind of a a beautiful thing. Something like that, yeah.
0: But you don't say that during Mass.
1: I do, but I don't say it out loud. Yeah, people don't do it out loud. Right. And I think, and people at Mass don't have to do that. I think what happened over the years is people saw the priest doing that and they're like, oh, I should be doing that. Good question. Other questions? If you're a scripture person, maybe one more um, about the cross. I have to to look at the chapters if you want the chapters, but both in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, uh, when God goes through the world and he looks for those who belong to him, in Ezekiel, it's usually translated, it says they have a mark on them. Um, And same in Revelation, actually, oftentimes, but in both, time, both cases, it's a cross that's made on them. In the book of Ezekiel, the actual Hebrew says that this angel is to put a towel on whoever belongs to God and is living a good life, those kinds of things. And he says, put a towel, which is a Hebrew letter, and it's a cross. And the early Christians picked up on that and, they, and they, they talk about these marks that mark us as belonging to Christ. Um, we'll get into that deeper when we talk about confirmation. Any other questions? Yeah. The others. They also the disciples? Yeah, what we're going to get to, um, what we're going to see eventually, this is a huge topic. There's going to be many others they pass that on to, but the main people, the early Christians, what they tell us is that the people the apostles mainly handed the faith on to most intentionally were what we call bishops. And those are actually, that's actually a word in the New Testament, Um, but that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. All right, last chance, any last questions? Yeah. Did you seriously just say indelible? Yes, no, he's right, that is a real thing. So indelible, it just means it can't be wiped wiped away, right? And so we're going to talk about that, that mark from Ezekiel and Revelation. We'll talk about this when we talk about sacraments down the road. But all the early Christians in the New Testament tell us, and it'll be so powerful when we get there, that the most important way that Christ puts that mark on you is not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. And that there's actually a mark that's put on your soul. And it's a metaphor, right, because your soul isn't physical. It's a metaphor, but something spiritual happens to your soul in sacraments that mark you as belonging to Christ. And we'll talk about that. There's lots of places Saint Paul talks about that. There's I'll give you readings from early Christians who talk about this, and we'll, we'll explain that. But yeah, indelible just means it can't be taken away. That's why we don't baptize people more than once. We believe there's an indelible mark that happens at baptism. Um. Okay, is everybody lost? This means yes. This means no. Or you can just stare at me, make me feel awkward. Okay, here we go. Those are all good questions, by the way. So tonight, what we want to do is I want to review very quickly what we did last time in the last two classes and in hopefully like two minutes, and then we're going to move to our next question. So let's start with this. There's three questions. If you're going to be a Catholic, there's three questions you have to say yes, get the answer yes to. What are the three questions? Does God exist? Is Jesus God? And did Jesus give authority to the Catholic Church? So last class, last two classes, we've been talking about does God exist? Probably my guess is most of you already believe that, what I'm hoping happened is you saw like, wow, there's, this isn't just something I believe, but wow, there's like profoundly good reasons for believing God exists. And in fact, far better reasons than people who don't believe he exists. And if you remember, there's kind of two categories of those. There's some that have to do with the cosmos, right, with the universe, and the way the universe works. And we talked about how something cannot come from nothing. We talked about that analogy where like, if you walk through the forest and you find an iPhone, you know that because it works the way it does, that there was something intelligent kind of behind it. Uh, And how the, the world as a whole seems to work. The biggest argument is something can't come from nothing. And we talked about the Big Bang and different cosmological theories. Uh, But it's very, very hard. Everyone has faith, I always say. People who believe in God have faith in God. People who don't believe in God believe that this incredibly deep conversation we're having tonight and all the magical, mysterious things in our world just happen to be there for no reason at all. Everyone has faith. Some people think about it more than others. But we live in a mysterious world. Okay, so there's the cosmos, and then there's the arguments about man. And we talked about how human beings, right, we have a couple of key things, but uh, freedom's a big one that we kind of centered in on. We could also talk about consciousness and different things. But... Freedom, if you don't believe in a soul, right? If you don't believe in a soul, then freedom must be an illusion. If you want an intelligent atheist that believes this, look up Sam Harris. He's an intelligent atheist. He believes freedom is totally made up because the only things that matter that exist are physical things. And if all we are is physical things, you did not decide to come here tonight because physical things don't have freedom. Physical things have causation. It's like pool balls. Like one pool ball hits another, and it goes in a direction. And that hits another thing, it goes another direction. And that hits another thing, it goes another direction. Smart atheists believe this. And they think that all of our decisions, we, it feels like we have freedom, but we don't really have freedom. What happened was a neuron fired in your brain, and that hit another neuron, and it sparked a chain of events that made you think that you chose to come here tonight, even though you had a long day and you wanted gelato, and you're like, okay, I'll decide to go. There'll be beer, right? And cider. Thank you. Okay. Here's the, and then here we go with freedom. There's two other sh- offshoots of that. If there is no freedom, there's also no morality. Can't be morality. Impossible. When a glass falls out of my cupboard and shatters on my floor, I don't get mad at the glass, right? I'm not like, you evil glass how dare you do that? Because a glass doesn't have freedom. It doesn't make decisions. So if you want to say there's no God, you also, if you're, if you really think about it, you have to abandon morality. And one, because you don't have freedom. And two, the other problem with morality is where did it come from? If all we are, if it's just evolution, if that's all there is, is evolution, and if you're new tonight, I believe in evolution. The Catholic Church is fine with evolution, but we say there's more than just evolution. But if all you are, if all life is is survival of the fittest, there is no right and wrong. Right? Killing isn't wrong, it's, it's evolution, it's survival of the fittest. But if you actually believe that some things are intrinsically wrong, you have to ask where did that come from? And it's extraordinarily difficult to come up with an answer to that. Again, if anybody wants to go deeper, we would talk about how the Enlightenment tried to do this. It tried to find a way to prove that morality existed without God, and it couldn't, it failed. It's one of, it's it's the biggest failure of the Enlightenment. But my guess is most of you don't care about that, so we should probably move on. Yes? Question. I guess my question is that could morality still exists because you could say it's culture. So I guess the right. trend is how far back can you trace that learning? Because it's not necessarily an So that's the question. So let me repeat that is couldn't you say there's still morality but that it's cultural and you learned it from someone else so it keeps going back? So the, the kind of Catholic answer to that is that some things are cultural, certainly. right? There are cultural norms that change. But if you want to say there's anything that's intrinsically right or wrong, I probably spelled that wrong. Does anybody else teach? Neely, when you teach, do you like write things on the board, just like words like that? I don't know why I do that. I'm like intrinsic. <laughs> I don't know why I do that. I will do that all year. But if you think, here's the problem with that. That's, that is true for something certainly. But is everything that way? Was, was murder, is murder just a cultural norm? Or is it inherently, intrinsically wrong to kill an innocent human being? You could answer either way. But if you say that it's just cultural, then morality is just conventional. It's just made up. It's like a stop sign or a stoplight. Right? We made stoplights. I'm getting fat. Um, stoplights. Red doesn't necessarily mean stop, we decided that. It could have been blue, that society made that up. And people who take that view, who say there's, it's just cultural, they must say, if they're logically consistent, that murder, rape, etc., etc., is not wrong, but we decided it was for convenience sake, the way we decided that a stop, that red should mean stop. Does that make sense? Once you, get, once you say that rape is intrinsically wrong, that it's not something we made up, but there's actually something wrong in rape or murder or stealing or lying, once you say that, if you really think things through thoroughly, it's very hard not to believe there's such a thing as God. Okay, any other questions? We're still not to tonight's class, but yeah, Adam. <laughs> atheism does not have a like, where's your catechism? You need to put it away. Like if this is the catechism, atheism doesn't have a book like this that says this is what we believe, right? There we go, catechism. Atheism doesn't have anything like this, and if if you listen to atheists, which I really try to, there's a lot of well-intentioned, very smart atheists out there. What, I, what my my kind of encounter with with their thoughts says is they're like, we don't have. There's not like atheists. It's like saying I'm not a Buddhist, and all and all Buddhists who, or all non-Buddhists believe this. A lot of atheists they want to say. We just don't believe this, but that doesn't mean we all have this positive belief system. And I think that's true. What this is, is just an exercise in logic. And it runs pretty consistently. When you meet smart atheists, they know that this is an argument for God. And they know where it leads. And so they tend, not all of them, but they tend to deny freedom. And that's logically consistent. Okay, Jim. You could use either. So, will, um, the word, I don't know where we got that actual word will, because the, the, the Greek word is, um, and the um, Latin word is voluntas. Um, um but yeah, it just, it just means the power to choose, that we actually have choice. Anybody else? Okay. Here we go. We're now on tonight. Does anybody, do we need a break? <laughs> anybody need a break? And love, sorry, thank you. Love's the other thing. If, if you don't have freedom, there's no real love. Right, love is that you choose to love someone. If, and again, like, if you have an evolutionary biologist who does not believe in anything spiritual, but they only believe in physical matter, what they'll tell you is that we talk about love, but really what that is is the desire to propagate the species. There's, you have to deny love at the end of the day. Okay, If you missed any of that, I would encourage you to go back, listen to the recordings from previous weeks, or come talk to me. We can always talk about it more. I always welcome that. So here we go. So tonight we want to start at least. We'll see how far we get. Why be a Christian? We've talked about, is there a God? Now the next question is, is Jesus God? Is there a way to know that Jesus is God? Um, There's two, and what I want to start with tonight is that in world religions we're going to be talking about, there's kind of a, there's two extremes in the way people look at this, I think. This is how I want to frame it. So one side would be rationalism. The other side would be, a little, we'll call it mysticism. And I'll explain these. Now, here's, here, I just want to name a couple of things as we start this tonight. Have you ever, for those of you who are Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, have you ever felt that either yourself or Christians in general, does it ever feel kind of arrogant for us to say that Jesus is God? Has anybody ever felt that? Yeah. Four of us, okay. The rest of you, again, are liars. This is the common argument today, isn't it? If you haven't encountered this, you haven't been paying much attention, right? There's a huge feeling in the world today that when I say Jesus is God, he's the truth, that that implies that what? Yeah, the other ones are wrong, which is true. And I am a jerk, and I know. So, but that—that that is one side of it. And and the first thing I just want to name, is that. We're gonna we're gonna deal with that. Um, I don't even know. How, I had a really good art line for this, but I just spaced it. But but the point is simply this: is that we want to talk about truth. And we should be pursuing that all together and so we feel like if i say jesus is god it's kind of arrogant cuz what about the guy in china who's way holier than i am who's way wiser than i am isn't it arrogant to say that you have the truth and he doesn't and that's going to lead towards what i'm going to call mysticism tonight and what i mean by mysticism is basically that what matters is the religious experience. Right? So so the religious experience, right, that a lot of people believe this today. What really matters is not, let's stop being arrogant. Everybody stop pretending that you know better than everybody else. And let's just admit that none of us really knows, but, there's, but people have religious experiences, and that's what's important. Does that, has anybody heard that? Okay. Coexist, thank you. I hate that sticker. But I'll explain why in a minute. If it just meant coexist, I have no problem with it. What I think it is trying to say is that all religions are the same. That's what I get. When I see those coexist stickers, I think what they're saying is all religions are the same. And that is part of kind of the worldview over here. One more of this. Let's just write that. All religion... Same. Here's, there's two analogies that are used very commonly for this. Um, the first one is, you've, and I think you've probably heard both of these. The first one is that religion is like a bunch of blind men in a room and there's an elephant in the room. And the one guy at the one end of the room says, well, I feel this long tail, and that's, that's what God is. It's this long tail. And another says, well, I have, there's this huge pillar, like tree trunk thing, and he's holding the elephant's leg, and for that person, that's what God is. And you could go on and on, but each person in the room Is describing something true, but none of them have the whole picture. That's one common analogy used for that, and people will say that's like, you know, the Catholics, the Protestants, the Buddhists, the Muslims, etc., etc., etc. The other analogy that's frequently used here um, is the mountain. And they'll say, Religion is like, it's like if God's at at the top of a mountain or truth is, whatever you want to, however you want to say it, the religion, they're all different paths up the same mountain. Okay, one more time. Don't lie to me. Have you heard those analogies? Okay. You can also, if I get mean in class, just be like, FB. Back off. All right. Okay. Let's sh- sketch this really quick and then we'll take a break. Rationalism says it has no room for the mystical. And rationalism says that all that is true is measured by human reason. This is associated, and where this comes from, it's not the first time in history, but in our time where this comes from is from that movement called the Enlightenment. So, there's a very famous philosopher named Immanuel Kant. And Kant wrote a, a famous work called Religion Within the um, Bounds of Reason Alone. So, only what makes sense to me is what's true. And a human rationality is the only measure for what's true. Okay, real quick. I just want you to notice this. We're going to take a like five-minute break. But notice that on this end you have one measure for what is true and on this one you have a different measure. Right? There's people's mystical experiences. There's their religious experience of the supernatural, of God, of souls, of spirits, whatever you want to call it, that there's something here. And they don't in these two systems, they don't overlap. Okay, five minute break. In that time, I want you to meet two people you haven't met yet, and then we'll start back up. So pull out your sheets. So like I always say, I when I give you guys handouts, these generally tend to be people who are much, much smarter than I am. And I also hope you'll take them home they're worth hanging on to. So, a little bit of show and tell tonight. Could have brought a couple more, but some of the quotes that are, come, that are on your sheet, these are the books they are coming from. Um, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who is Pope Benedict XVI. This is a book he wrote on Christianity and other religions called Truth and Tolerance. This is, if you don't have a theological background, I'll recommend books from him. If, this is not the first theological book you want to pick up, but it's amazing. I think this is probably, of all the books I could recommend on this subject, this one is phenomenal. It's called Truth and Tolerance by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, I'll leave these out tonight at the end, too, if anybody wants to see these. If you want a general book on world religions, not by a Christian, um Houston Smith was considered the last century the great scholar of world religions. and this is just called "The World's Religions. <laughs> Dramatic title. Cool story about this. If you come to Lord's, you'll hear me talk about Father Goronsky. Uh, Houston Smith, again, probably the world's greatest authority on world religions, he um, he mentored father. Father Raymond Goronsky. And Father Goronsky was a Jesuit, or not a Jesuit, he was eventually, but he was a graduate student at Syracuse University, and he traveled the world with this guy. And Father Goronsky actually became a practicing Buddhist monk uh, at one point in his life. And he tried a bunch of different religions. He traveled all over Asia with Houston Smith. And later, a, little, a couple of years later in his life through study and prayer and all kinds of things. I wish he was here to tell us. He converted to Catholicism, ended up becoming a priest, uh, but was an amazing expert on Eastern religions. Um, And I I miss him. He died, what, Mary, what was it, two years ago? Three? Two? Um, So that priest, Father Goronsky, this is his doctoral dissertation. I do not recommend it. It's... Very good if you are a philosophy and theology type. It's called Word in Silence, and it's amazing, but I just kind of wanted you to think I was cool. So there's that. And then tonight, I don't know that we'll get to this, I brought this in case we get to it, Um, but we're going to talk about resurrection. If you want to understand resurrection, uh, this is a book by a Christian scholar named N.T. Wright and it's called Surprise by Hope. And it's the best book on the resurrection that I have ever read. Um, and it talks about the ancient world and what they believed about resurrection, what they believed about the afterlife, what they didn't believe. It's just a phenomenal book. Okay. N.T. Wright. He's a British guy, and kind of like C.S. Lewis, they like the initial thing. So... Into you right. Okay, so look at your sheet and let's do one or two quotes and then we'll complete this kind of spectrum here. So, that first quote at the top, and this is the question in, in the modern world in many ways right now about God Is there any truth for men? truth that is accessible as such for all men and belongs to all men? Or are we only ever in different symbols just touching on the mystery that never unveils itself to us? Is it a presumption to talk about the truth of faith or is it a duty? So here's Ratzinger talking about this, right? Isn't it arrogant and presumptuous to think that you have the truth? And is it possible? Is it possible that there's a truth that's big enough for all of us? And we can come back to some of these quotes, but here's here's the Christian answer. Is that Jesus, one of the titles for Jesus is the word in Greek. Logos, Logos is the word in Greek that means word. But it doesn't just mean word. It actually, in Greek, it really means wisdom or rationality, it means God's wisdom. And here's the point the myth, what Christians believe is that you don't have to choose one of these two. What Christians believe is that the answer to that problem is Jesus Christ. Because if you're on this side, if you're on the rational side and you're looking at the mystical side, people just look crazy. Right? Someone comes up to me and they say, Father Brian, you know, um, I had a, a, a mystical vision last night. And the rationalist says, sure you did. But if you're on this side and you look at the rationalists, you look at them and you say, you're so narrow. Right? All you think is true is what you can understand. And so what Christians believe, and this is why it's so powerful, and we'll flush this out, is that The mystical came into the world as truth. The mystical came into the world as truth. God Himself entered the world right, in a way that our minds can understand. And so that these two actually come together. So Pope Benedict says this, he says, if you study the ancient world, and then here's here's where you got to wrestle with Christianity, especially when you live in our culture. When you live in a Western culture, here's what you got to wrestle with prior to the first century A.D., right, Christianity does not exist. After the year 33 A.D., it explodes. It absolutely explodes. And everything we know about that period of history tells us that it should not have. Everything we know. There are tons of other religions that are kind of sprouting out at the time of Christ. And they all die. Christianity became the most persecuted religion in the Roman Empire. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. There are tons of people who claim to be the Messiah in Jesus' day. Bet you that, I mean, I'd, be, I'd be amazed if any of you can name any one of them. But the thing you have to wrestle with is why did this one little religion, why did it explode, and why did the ancient world convert? And there's a lot of reasons, but here's one. Here's one I want to drive out tonight. When you study this, the ancient world was like this. The world Jesus came into, not in Judaism, but in the Greeks and the Romans, they were like this. And so there's gods everywhere, right? If you're a Roman or a Greek, there's Jupiter and Aphrodite and Hermes, and there's all these different gods, right? There's gods of fire and water and sky and sea and land, and every spring that comes out of the earth is a god, and the stars are gods, and everything's a god. And they were fine with that. But actually, by the time that you get to the time of Christ, Intelligent people stopped believing. And mysticism was starting to die in that form in that world. Because people would read these stories from Homer, right? And they'd say, This doesn't make any sense. You have these like supposed gods, they're doing immoral things, there's no evidence for this, it doesn't make any sense. And so they started looking for, you know, could there really be a God? And they started thinking about it, and you get something called the God of the philosophers. In the ancient world, it said there has to be a God because we have all these things. The world exists, there's rationality, there's freedom, there's love, there's truth. There has to be a God but they say, we don't know who he could possibly be or what a a being like that would look like. How do we know anything? And right at that time, Christianity exploded. And what happened was that all these things that the philosophers said, if God exists, God must look like this. This must be true. Using our minds, this must be true of God. God. And the problem with the God of the philosophers is you can't worship something that you came up with. You ever thought about that? Yeah, Katie. Yeah. Yeah, very good. You're right. The God of the philosophers really is over here. So the God of philosophers is just trying to use reason to say, if there's a God, it must look like this. So Plato and Aristotle, um, Plotinus fall into this category. A lot of ancient thinkers. But at the end of the day, right, you could say, wow, this is an amazing idea. This is what I think this really is true, and it makes a lot of sense. But you can't worship something that you came up with so no one actually ever believed in this kind of being. But then all of a sudden, Christianity comes out, and it's taught not by philosophers, not by academics, but by fishermen. But it lined up with all not everything perfectly but it was there's this amazing correspondence where educated people said oh my gosh everything we've said about god is what these jews are saying about this man jesus and they're not academics they're not philosophers it, they claim that it comes from god himself Sure. so a big thing is just wisdom is Logos morality was a huge part of that one of the biggest things was that there was a shift towards monotheism as the philosophers begin to think and they push things they really begin to, to understand that there, there must be even if there were like beings between us and the highest being, what we mean by God had to be something that there was only one of. Um, That was a big thing. Morality was huge. Um, I feel like I'm freezing on the spot here. Let me think about that. Come back to me. I know there's more about that. And Ratzinger talks about that in this book, too, so we could look it up. The questions? Yeah, existentialism, I'm going to be arrested with my philosophical categories, so do you want to, what do you mean by existentialism? Yeah. Let's punt on that. Will you write me an email and we'll, I'll answer that, but I'm going to be sloppy tonight if I try to answer that. Yeah, shoot me an email. Other questions? Did you want to comment on that one? Okay. Yeah, Dan. is there a Catholic mysticism today? So, what Catholics believe is there is there a Catholic mysticism today? Yes. But what we want to say is that it's not divorced from reason. Okay, so here's the big point I really want to get to tonight. Here's the big thing that makes Christianity different from every other religion. And we're going to spend a lot of time in class talking about why it makes sense to be a Christian, but here's one of the biggest ones. So Christianity, maybe this is in two parts. The first one is, Christianity does not believe that, let me say it this way, the Catholic Church doesn't believe that we're the only ones who have anything good and we're the ones that are right and everyone else is wrong. Here's a way that I would describe it, and it's from Balthazar. But it's like a symphony, And Balthazar has a great analogy with this. He says, imagine you go to a symphony and you go and the different members of the orchestra, get, they get there, they're warming up. And so the violinists are over here and you've got the, the brass section, you've got the cellists. We're all here. And if you show up on time to a symphony, what happens is everyone starts to warm up. Right? And maybe this section over here, they say, you know what? We're going to warm up. We're going to play some Mozart. And over here, someone's going to play Bach, and we have Beethoven, um, and we have Handel, and whoever else. And the musicians are playing their own thing. Now, are they good or bad? They're good, right? All of those are good things. All of them. And this is how the Catholic Church views this, is that different cultures across the world and different religions, there was great good in all of them. There's problems, too, and when we see those, we need to talk about them. But how does that symphony, how does it come together? How do you actually get the symphony to start? You need a conductor. And that's how the Catholic Church sees this, is that Jesus is the one conductor And he doesn't say, you know what? Eastern cultures, you're bad. And South American cultures, you're bad. Europeans, you're okay. You know, Jews, you're cool. No, like the truth is big enough for everyone. And then what happens is that as the conductor steps on the stage, he takes everything and he brings it into symphony, into harmony. And so this is a good time to tell you that the word Catholic, does anybody know what that word means? It means universal. For various reasons, but one of the reasons is because the early Christians called themselves Catholic because they said, this is a truth that is big enough for everyone. Everyone. Okay, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Here's why Christianity is different from every other religion. In every other religion, and this is maybe a little bit of an overstatement, it probably is, but in other religions, what generally happens is people say, I either had a mystical experience or I, I figured something out. And oftentimes, those are they, there's profound goodness in those things. But generally, what religion has been in history has been human beings saying that they discovered something about God. Or, if you don't want to say God, you could say the one, Nirvana, whatever it might be. Christianity, right? I'll come back to you in one second. Christianity, what Christianity claims is that this is impossible. impossible. Like we, and we can say some true things about God, but that our thoughts can't reach God. People, people who like want to kind of argue with me sometimes, they'll say, well, Father Brian, I think God's like this. And I hate conflict, so you know what I usually do? I'm like, I smile and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. But what I want to say to them is, how do you know? How do you know? And this is the Christian contention. The Christian contention is not that St. Peter or St. Paul or one of the popes or someone came up that they had an experience of God. It's that we can't actually reach God. It's that God came to us. It's that, the, the, that eternity broke into our world. And so it has a history, right? So if someone says to me, Father Brian, I had this amazing experience of God, how am I supposed to know? Right, when, when the Buddha attains enlightenment... there's no way to measure that. You can say he was incredibly wise, he had great teachings, but can you know that he attained enlightenment? I don't think so. So one more quote, and then I want Neely to jump in. Maybe just that second one. St. Paul said that the Greeks, this is from Acts 17, the Greeks had one altar to an unknown God. And here's the Christian point. But in truth, all their gods were unknown gods. It is an attempt to reach the divine reality through the imagination alone. In reality, the rivers of mythology and philosophy run parallel, and they do not mingle till they meet in the sea of Christendom. Okay, Mm Nealian. Good. I like that. Messiah plus. Can we make t-shirts that say that? So the Jewish faith, we would put very similarly to the Muslim faith, is that in, in Judaism, right, Moses and others claimed to have experiences of God. And we can evaluate certain things. Like, like, if you guys want to do this, we'll do this next time. We'll evaluate some of the teachings, and we can apply our rationality to those teachings. But at the end of the day, Moses says, I went up on a mountain, God gave me a law, and this is what it says. Just like in, in, in Islam, Muhammad says, "I have, Allah revealed himself to me. But in Judaism, right, you could take Moses out of Judaism and you could still have Judaism. In Islam, you could take Muhammad out of Muslim or out of Islam, and you could still have Islam. You can't do that with Christianity. You can't do it. And the Christian point is that something happened in the year 33 A.D. And it wasn't a private revelation. It wasn't someone who had an experience. It was something public. Right? It's something that was visible, that we can mark historically, that there's lots of evidence for. Now, real quick, Mormonism. That's a tricky one. Mormonism, <clears throat> Well, this will be a little bit better to deal with when we get to other Christian religions, but Let me just do a sneak preview. Muslims, right, it's the same kind of thing. Muslims believe in private revelation. So maybe this is a good way to do this. There's public and private revelation. So think about this. So me, you guys, like by coming to class, you can know certain things about me, right? You can look at me and you can say, okay, Father Brian is, you know, obviously a priest. He's about, you know, 5'11 and a half, and I won't tell you my weight. Um, devilishly handsome, you know, whatever. But there's certain things about me you can only know if I reveal them to you. Right? There's, there's certain things inside my heart, my mind, that I, you can only know if I decide to reveal them to you. So what we believe, what that's called is revelation, right? When I reveal something to someone. If I have something inside of me that that you can't know, but I reveal it to you, we call that revelation. With Mormons, here's the difference. Catholics believe in both of those types. Public is the life of Christ. It was a public thing private we also believe in, so like saints, so like I really believe like St. Faustina Kowalska, Jesus Christ appeared to her. But here's what the Catholic Church teaches. These kind of revelations where only one person saw them, to be a good Catholic, you do not have to believe any of them. And Mormonism, we don't believe in the Mormon revelations, but Mormonism asks you to believe a private revelation as the entire basis for everything. So Joseph Smith is in upstate New York, the tablets, the the angel Moroni appears, and Joseph Smith says, I saw this and you have to believe me. And that's the whole basis of it. Catholicism says there are saints we believe, that God appeared to them, and the church has said, this is trustworthy. But actually, the church says, you don't ever have to believe it. Because everything you need to know to be a Christian was here. And that's what matters. So it's not based on a private revelation, but a public. Yeah, hold on, we'll come back to you, but yeah. Yep. I feel like we get a lot of slack for being Catholic. Ooh. Right. Yeah. So we do get flack for believing in saints. We're going to talk about that down the road and why it makes sense to believe in saints. But yeah. We don't worship them. We don't have to believe in their revelation, right? So like the name of our church here is Our Lady of Lords and the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to St. Bernadette in France. You don't have to believe that. I do. You can be a hundred percent good Catholic and you can say, I don't think that happened. Yes, Steve.
0: One of the great paradoxes of the world has always been the belief of Jesus Christ is actually how we date ourselves. Because if somebody says, "Well, how old are you?" and I say, "I'm fifty-four years so old, born in nineteen sixty-four, which is one thousand nine hundred and sixty-four
1: years after the death of Christ." Right. Um, it, everybody around the
0: world uses that measure to say I'm this old or this event happened on this.
1: Right. Day. How did that... Well, the Western calendar, I forget the, I want to say that's the Julian calendar, is that right? The Western calendar, when the Western world became Christian, dated the start of time with the birth of Christ. Ancient cultures did that, by the way. They would start time based on when a king began his reign. And so they said, Jesus is the king of the universe, so we're going to start our calendar with his birth. And that happened, I want to say, fifth century. Some of them do, but I think that's much more modern in the modern world as that began to more communication was happening. One more? Okay. Okay, let's try to wrap this up. I feel like I've been off tonight, so I apologize for that. But it's going to happen sometimes. So, next time, what we're going to do is we're going to talk specifically about Jesus. But here's, and let's just leave you with this tonight. And we talked about this, I think, in our first class, but I want to drive this home. Lots of people have really good ideas about God. And Father Goronsky, who I talked about, who wrote the dissertation that I do not recommend. It's really good, but it's really dense. Um, Father Goronsky had more knowledge and respect for, like, Buddhism and Hinduism and Confucianism. He spoke Mandarin Chinese fluently. He was amazing. And he would say it's much, much deeper than you think it is. And he, and he would, in fact, say that Eastern religions have more to dialogue with Christianity about than even ancient Greek culture did. But here's, here's the difference. Christianity didn't start with a good thought. This is so critical. This is so critical. Christianity did not start with a good thought. It started with an empty tomb. That's what it started with. And again, okay, so I will not be able to prove to you that Jesus is God. You have to have faith for that. What I am going to show you, well... I hate markers. What I am going to show you is that there's unbelievably good reasons for thinking he's God. G.K. Chesterton says it's like a key. You can look at it, imagine like a really ornate key and it looks really weird. And you're like, I don't know if I like this key. I think I like a simpler key. And another guy's like, well, I like a more ornate key. Well, I like a key that looks like this. And Chesterton says, does it fit the lock or not? And here's the, one of the reasons I am a Christian, one of the many, is because what Chesterton says in the middle of your page, here we go, this is so good. A man is not really convinced of a philosophic theory when he finds uh, that something proves it. He is only really convinced when he finds that everything proves it. That's why I'm a Christian. And we're going to talk about it the rest of class uh, the next however many months. But not one thing proves Christianity. Everything does. But it starts not with this idea about God, with really brilliant, really good people thinking about God. It starts with a body that should have been in a tomb and wasn't. And to go back to that first class, right, people think, that, oh, well, ancient peoples, they believed anything, right? And lots of people had myths about resurrection. No, they didn't. So this book that I recommended, The Surprise by Hope, this is the mini version of an 800-page book. This is more academic work. And N.T. Wright does all the research. Ancient peoples did not believe in Resurrection no one believed in it no one believed that bodies rose from the dead no one something happened here and following that jesus's 11 remaining followers gave their lives in terrible torturous ways rather than deny that he was risen from the dead Now, that doesn't prove it, right? They could have been wrong, but it's pretty compelling. So let's end tonight with the story of St. Peter. Next week, I'm not going to take drugs before class, and I'm going to be more coherent. But let's finish with the story of St. Peter. Did I tell this already? I did? Okay, let's not finish with the story of St. Peter. Let's finish with the story of St. Paul, okay? So St. Paul, he, is, he persecuted Christianity, Right? St. Paul persecutes the Christians. He thinks it's wrong. He never met Jesus during Jesus' earthly life, but after Jesus dies, rises from the dead, Jesus appears to St. Paul while he's on the road, the road to Damascus. Paul's converted. He spent the rest of his life traveling the ancient Near East, so between Europe and Turkey and Israel. And he went around trying to convince people that Christianity was true. Paul, what happens is at the end of his life, he goes to Jerusalem. He's condemned. And he says, You can't condemn me. I'm a Roman citizen. So they send him up to um, Caesarea Maritima, which I've been to. It's in the north of Israel. And the Romans hold him captive. And eventually they send him all the way to Rome. And here's the thing. Paul, Paul is an academic. Paul's a brilliant writer. Paul goes to Rome. This is why the Catholic Church, you ever wonder why Catholics love Rome? Did anybody ever wonder that? The reason that, the, that Rome's is the center for the Catholic Church is that both St. Peter and St. Paul were martyred there. So in about the year 64, St. Paul goes to Rome and he's beheaded. And today, if you go to Rome, there's a church called St. Paul's Outside the Walls. So last thought for tonight, what's different with Christians, this is what what makes Christianity a different religion, is not that somehow someone had an experience of God or of what's eternal or of the beyond, whatever you want to call it. How are we supposed to know that? And what Christians again say is that that's, we don't believe it's possible for us to reach all the way to God. But Christianity is the story about how God reached down to us. And it's not just one person who experienced this. That there's dates, there's places, there's archaeology, right? We'll go to Jerusalem all together someday. And I'll show you the spot where we know that Jesus was crucified. And the archaeological evidence is amazing. Okay, let's close with a prayer. Next week, what we're going to talk about is some of the beliefs about the world that makes sense of Christianity and what Christianity, how Christianity makes sense of the world. Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you tonight. I thank you for everyone here. Lord, I ask that you would help us to bridge that gap, Lord, between a sense of the divine and in our our brains, our rationality, our reason. Lord, help us to bring those two things together in you. Bless everyone here tonight as they go. Bless their week. Fill them with joy and peace. Uh, and give us your grace. And we make our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.